Outsider Thread is recorded on the unceded territory of the Wurundjeri people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land where I broadcast from. I'd like to recognise their ongoing legacy and connection to land, waters and culture, and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. I extend this respect to all other First Nations people of this continent, whose stolen land our infrastructure and digital connectivity is built upon. Hey, I'm Darcy, and you're listening to Outsider Thread. For this episode of Outsider, I interviewed Dr. Erica Davis-Myers, also known as DJ Lady Erica. Although I met Erica as a vinyl DJ when I was working in the music room in Melbourne, I later on found out that she's highly academic. She's got a Juris Doctor in Law and a Doctor of Business Admin, specialising in social enterprise. This expertise is used in her day job as a fundraising specialist. She's also a board member of multiple charitable organisations. Erica is a staunch advocate for reparations for the transatlantic slave trade and is a part of the Caribbean Commission for Reparations. She's also published a book on the role of Indigenous and ethnic people during World War II. Erica is amazing and I found her ability to pursue both professional and creative fulfilment simultaneously to be an inspiration for my own life. Hope you enjoy listening. Again. Um, yeah, yeah, so I guess if you could maybe just start by telling me um, in your own words what your career is and what you're kind of doing with your life now. Obviously, you're across quite a few different things, so probably easier for you to explain. Yeah, so look, um, so I split it between sort of, you know, a time of work. So my day job, um, I work as a consultant. Uh, with my 99% of my ch- of my clients are charities, but mm-hmm. I do have the every now and then the occasional corporate, um, private individual and government department. Um, and basically I give them advice around fundraising, so basically how to raise money. Um, I predominantly work with groups who have either never, never fundraised before, um, so don't have any experience, or are looking for a change of strategy, maybe something they've been doing hasn't been working, so they're looking for something new or, or maybe a different approach. Um, I also work with people who are looking to set up charities, so mm-hmm. I've, um, I help them in the regulatory taxation space. Um, so ensuring that, um, so while a lawyer can sort of set up the company, you know, usually it's, it's a company limited by guarantee, get your constitution, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Often they're not thinking about the fundraising side of it. So if it's not structured correctly, um, you can't get tax deductions, which means it's really hard to fundraise because mm-hmm. sort of 90% of the fundraising income out there, you, they're, they could, they're only allowed to give it to a tax registered organisation. Mm. So, yeah, so if it's not set up correctly in the first place, then you, you sort of miss out on all that money. Um and uh, so I help people with that. And um, and then, um, I mean, I have a doctorate, so that's, uh, you know, in social enterprises, um, how people with disability um, 
or um, people living in remote and sort of regional, rural sort of places organise themselves to make money when they don't have access to to sort of social safety nets. So I, I looked at and did my research in the Caribbean mm-hmm. where there, are, there aren't a lot of social um, safety nets. You know, there's no disability support pension or anything like that. So um, And so sort of looked at how people yeah, got together to create work for themselves in order to create a living um, when they had, you know, this sort of huge sort of disadvantages. Um, so, so I have an interest in social enterprises and how they operate and, and, you know, the best way to sort of, you know, kind of work with them and, and all that sort of stuff. So, and I've sort of run a few where the, the social enterprises have been, have been focused on what I call participant workers. So people who are disadvantaged in some way and are looking to get themselves out of that disadvantage through employment. Um, so, so I do quite a bit of research, so sort of market research, consumer research, fundraising, donor-based research, um, you know, finding out donor sentiment maybe for an organisation, what do their donors think of them, what does the community think of them, um, particularly if they're looking at launching a large campaign or doing something. So, yeah, so that's, that's my day job. So that's all the consulting work. Um, my night job then um, is in music industry. Um, and um, so predominantly I DJ um, and have done for a very long time. Um, and um, and then also um, I sit on the board of Melbourne Electronic Sound um, Studio. So that's, we have one of the world's largest collections of working synthesizers. So all our synths are working as opposed to just being museum pieces. Um, some are, music are, are very rare. Um, you know, we've got, uh, there are only three working sort of models um, of the very first synthesizer that was ever made, you know, in the 1940s. So th- one of them is here in our collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so we support schools, um, individuals um, who want to learn how to, you know, make music using analog gear. Um, we also support artists, sort of working artists, sort of kind of, you know, entry, mid-level, sort of mid-career artists um, through residencies. We have a residency program mm. um, where, you know, they have access to our collection and then we'll make some music and do some really cool stuff. Um, and, um, and and part of my role as a director um, is, one, to help with fundraising uh, and, two, to, to really look at, you know, sort of positioning us in a way that, you know, we're, we're seen as a, a credible institution. Um, there's... Uh, quite a bit of prejudice towards electronic music, mm. um, particularly when it comes to funding, um, like government funding. Um, when you think about the school curriculum, you don't get taught electronic music, but actually that's the music that most kids listen to. Yeah. Um, so, and that's not a diss towards classical music because I like classical music. You know, however, there is a certainly a bias towards funding towards classical music spaces um, and classical music programs. Yeah. Um, and so, even when you think about the, yeah the curriculum, the curriculum teaches instruments, which is great because I think all kids should learn an instrument. But they're all traditional instruments. They're not electronic instruments. And when you think about the cost, it's actually cheaper to set up a home studio with electronic gear than it often is to buy traditional instruments. And again, yeah, you know, young people, not even young people, even older people um, are are interested and we're surrounded, you know, our contemporary life, we're surrounded by electronic sounds and electronic music. Um, But in, you know, when it comes to funding and government priorities, electronic music doesn't have the same sort of kind of credibility or kudos um, as or prestige as classical music. So, you know, so part of what we're looking at is, you know, sort of changing that, you know, um, that bias so that, you know, we get, you know, so electronic music sits on an equal level and therefore by that sort of... um, 
you know, electronic music producers and DJs are also not seen as, you know, as proper musicians, you know, because mm. you'll hear people say things like, oh, no, real music with guitars. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, that's... Um, you know, when, when that's not the case, you know, so, I mean, as, as a DJ, you know, and I've certainly had people say it to me, you know, oh, well, you know, it's not, you're not really, you're not really doing anything other than just, you know, playing some records, right? So, you know, but there is a, there is a craft to what I do, you know, so I play vinyl on turntables. I don't, I don't use any other uh, media. Um, so there's certainly skill in knowing how to mix and blend two tracks together, certainly to create a third sort of sound. Um, and and also to create emotion. So when people are either dancing, you know, I mean, we're tasked with um, basically filling places with emotion. So whether that's making people happy on a dance floor, whether it's creating a mood and an ambience in a restaurant or a bar, you know, through the music that you're playing, you know, you're creating something, you know, we're trying to interact on a human level with people. So, um, you know, so I'd certainly argue that DJs and electronic music producers are musicians in our own way. Um, and so therefore we should have an equal sort of sort of standing. Yeah, I definitely agree with you as well. I think that people really, um, I guess, who aren't familiar with electronic music or just with DJing as well, have a tendency to kind of dismiss the intangible element of creating a vibe, which is so difficult to Absolutely. do. It's like making it, it really is an art. And that's the thing. That's what I find so amazing about the mm. craft itself, because it's, it really is this intangible thing, because although it's diff- more difficult in a way to measure skill at than you can with yeah. an instrument, it's... Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. Yeah, and and you know it when you walk into a place. You know, you might walk into a bar for a drink. You're not necessarily a nightclub, but a bar, and or a restaurant or something. And if the music isn't is off key, you'll feel it straight away. You know, mm. it puts you off. You don't want to stay for a drink. You don't want to stay to eat. The music's too loud. It's not appropriate for the space. You know, it's, um, you know, you walk into a, you know, and 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 often and certainly in other cities, not so much in Melbourne, but you know, you walk into a bar. It'll be a beautifully visually appealing sort of space and they haven't considered the music, you know, so that someone's just put on, I don't know, their playlist. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you might be sort of eating in this beautiful restaurant and you've got this really terrible music on in the background, you know, that's actually, it's too fast, it's too loud. It's not, it's not what I call music to digest your food to because there's not someone, there's not a human there listening, you know, to, you know, it's an algorithm. Mm. So, um you know, so a disc jockey in that space, you know, is, you know, is in, in, in a way it's, you know, it's sort of, you almost don't know that they're good. It's only when it, when it's bad that you realize that actually, you know, oh, yeah. this, this space really needs a DJ, it needs someone to actually curate the music in here. Um, and, um, you know, certainly, you know, if you work, if you walk into whether it's a festival or a club or whatever, you know, I mean, you're often going there because, um, you know, it's particular music that's been played or a particular vibe, you know, um, whether, it, you know, do you feel comfortable, you know, does the music you know, sort of, you know, give you a headache, you know, is it sort of like, you know, sort of stabbing you in the head or is it gently persuading you onto the dance floor? Um, so, yeah, so I think, you know, the DJ's role is, you know, is sort of instrumental in these spaces. Um, and certainly from a commercial perspective, you know, we keep people in the room. Um, you know, we you know we can play a, tr- a track and kill a dance floor. Now, sometimes you might want to because you know I know in, you know sort of you can get you can be in a space where perhaps um, there's not enough people at the bar, right? So we know the tunes to play to make people get off the dance floor and go and get a drink, <laughs> you know, or go to the toilet or think about something else, you know, by sort of changing the music. Mm. Or is it that actually there's too many people at the bar and they need to clear that area and get people back on the dance floor? So you know, so it's not just playing music. You know, we're actually sort of thinking about traffic, movement, people. 
you know, either a group of lads in here who are looking a little bit aggressive. Okay, let's just bring the tempo down a bit so that we can just change the mood, change the vibe, you know, somewhat. Mm. You know, do we want people to feel a bit sexy and, you know, shake their thing on the dance floor? You know, the girls are all giving it or, you know, or what, whatever that looks like. So, yeah, we're, we're conductors um, yeah. and creators. And you're not just creating a vibe, you're also controlling the vibe, exactly. which is actually something that I haven't thought about <laughs> before. Yes, very much so very well you know if you think about it you know if, if you're in the club at the end of the night and you know the last track you know what kind of track is it that's played you know, yeah is it often a track to make you get out the get out the venue because the bar staff all want to go home so yeah <laughs> interesting and i think also on the topic of um you talking about how important the music is for the for the vibe as well mm. when there's not mu- when there's not a dj in the room i notice that you also do a bit of musical curation and for me i've i've worked i guess i met you when i was working at the music room but mm. i've also spent a little bit of time actually working at the Society and some Chris Lucas venues. And I met, um, oh, I'm trying to, I think it's Miss oh, Miss Somebody who does the musical curation for Chris Lucas across mm-hmm. all the venues. Um, and she does Black Wax on PBS. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so listening, going there and I just think, thinking and knowing that there was someone who was curating the music, yeah. I would be listening out and being like, yeah, wow, like this is yeah. really, I can really see the value that's been given here because especially when you're at a high-class restaurant like that, exactly. everything needs to be on point. And, yeah, with the with your work in music creation, can you tell me a bit about how that works? Yeah, so, look, I mean, depending on the brief um, and, you know, what you know what it's for, you know, is it for um, a store? You know, is it for a space where people are going to sort of socialise and interact? Is it, for a, is it for a space where they're going to be eating or drinking? Um, so you've got to consider... You know, what are people doing in, in the space? Um, and and then what do you want to make people feel mm. when they're in the space? You know, so as I said, you know, if it's a space where um, people are eating and drinking, you know, is it music to digest your food too? Yeah. You know, is it sort of, you know, and, and then, you know, is it, depending on the space you know you know what's the look of the what's the look of the space you know is it contemporary looking is it sort of industrial factory looking is it you know um you know sort of frilly and fluffy you know what what does the mm. space look like so sort of thinking of all those elements and then how people use that space um, thinking about, okay, how do we want them to feel? You know, so is it a space that's really, you know, do they want it to be really sort of cool and contemporary and, you know, it feels like, you know, we're in a sort of exclusive sort of the latest place or is it somewhere where, you know, people want to feel kind of homely and sort of comfortable and, you know, sort of warm and soft? So, yeah, so all of those things. Um, and then obviously, you know, you know, maybe the owners want a bit of p- their personality injected in that as well, um, you know, or the managers or whatever. So, yeah, it's sort of bringing all those elements together and then con- then thinking about, okay, now what does that sound like if it's a piece of music, mm. you know, um, and how do they want that music, you know? So is it something that's going to be um, played, you know, by a DJ? Is it something that's going to be on a playlist that's just sort of played in the background, you know, sort of thinking about those elements too? Yeah. And was that... Being chosen and off, I guess offered and paid for those roles was that an extension of your work as a DJ? Once yeah. you were doing that for a yeah, while, yeah, yeah. Cool. So a lot in fashion. So certainly doing things like music for fashion shows. Mm. Um, you know, so then so you know so being with the designer, looking at the clothes. You know, sort of getting an understanding of you know what does this collection mean? What are they trying to say through the clothes? You know, what's the 
you know what's the energy they want in the room you know when when the models first come out you know how will the models walk to this you know mm. you know is you know because in sort of music for fashion there's this particular kind of beat that you need because they, they're going to need to walk to that you know yeah if, if it's a cat style show if it's a salon style show that's actually quite a different completely different sort of proposition you know because a salon style show you haven't got a big runway you know it's usually people sort of seated in a room maybe in an interesting space and the models walk around you know the guests um you know so again you know is that more going to be more of like a french pop music sort of vibe you know or is it going to be more maybe even a bit of classical music you know what again depending on what what the design is after um and what they're trying to sort of the you know sort of the vibe or the impression that they're trying to sort of add to the collection and and the music can obviously add to that as well wow yeah Mm. cool and any interesting fashion shows that you've done curation for just on the topic um it's sort of been a a bit of everything sort of like pre-covid and my my memory is like completely shot pre-covid so yeah yeah you know but yeah but over the years um you know sort of some young designers um some more established um um and um and and certainly a sort of sort of bar spaces where you know them it might be that they've got DJs later on or maybe they have DJs on Friday Saturday nights but they want the music for sort of Monday to Thursday mm. um you know that the the bar staff will just play so you know sort of so creating kind of you know sort of playlists for those um and certainly sort of this is all kind of pre Spotify sort of days when yes. you, you know you sort of manually created the music um you know just to create the sort of the, the, the vibe that they wanted and they'd either put on a bunch of CDs or put on you know some you know sort of some wave files that you might make for them um and sort of have those on in the background so um and and you know and again they might you might be given a few different briefs on you know this is this is what we want to play in the daytime when we're serving lunch you know mm. this is what we want to sort of around sort of between four and eight o'clock you know where we've maybe got the after work crowd we want this sort of sound you know and you know maybe a bit later so you know that sort of thing cool cool and I think, I guess, going back to all the way to the start of you getting into working in vinyl, working in music creation, you were saying that you have, I guess, you like classical music. How did it all start for you? Do you have a musical background or? Um, um, I would have said no. Um, but, you know, but my earliest memories as a sort of two and three year old are actually putting records on. So um, and sort of holding myself up against the, the hi-fi to put to put uh, music on and liking music. Um I didn't actually meet my natural father till I was 20, but and I was already DJing by then. And I discovered he was a DJ. I didn't know that. So um, so he'd been a DJ, you know, since I think he was probably about the same age, sort of 19, 20. So, mm. um, and he DJed up until he died. So, um, and, you know, the family, um, his side of the family, they owned a nightclub and, you know, all sorts of things like that. So, um, so I guess maybe it was in the blood and I discovered that a brother from him that I had that I also didn't meet till then was also a DJ as well. So, um, yeah, so I guess maybe it's sort of genetic. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's so interesting. I feel like mm. quite a few people who I have on this show, it always like runs in the family. Yeah. Yeah. Or something. Yeah, yeah, there's something. So, um, but I think, you know, from the age of maybe, I mean, I, I certainly danced as a little kid. So, mm. you know, I'd sort of, you know, from the age of three, you know, you, you know, your mum sends you off to ballet and tap and uh, contemporary. Yeah. So, you know, did all of that sort of stuff. Um, and then by seven, I think I was learning the piano. Um, so from seven to 14, I learned piano. So to be honest, I wasn't overly excited by it. I mean, I kind of liked it, but I didn't, I hated practicing. Mm. Um, I actually really enjoy theory of music. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so sort of like my nerd sort of, 
of, you know, kind of thing was getting really kind of into the whole theory of it, but not so much into the playing of it. Mm. So, um, you know, an understanding, I guess, how music is, is constructed and, you know, the, yeah. well, all the theory of it, you know. So, yeah, so I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, so I'd say I'm a really crap piano player, um, but I, you know, but certainly understanding, you know, time signatures and, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, it definitely helps um, yeah. with DJing. Crappy only player, good music theorists, yeah, exactly. which is key. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to hear you say that, I guess, that the music theory has kind of informed the DJing and gave you, I guess, a good foundation for it because mm-hmm. it was, for my birthday this year, I had like this big thing planned. I was like doing all these different performances for people and I really needed to learn how to DJ. So I was like going to do this DJ set. And I, my friend Ed, um, who he's, he's a DJ as well. He does vinyl and regular. And I went and saw him and had a little tutorial. And he, I like the first thing that he centrally taught me was musical theory. Cause yeah. he was like, have you done music before? And of course I have absolutely zero background in music, paid zero attention in class because yeah, it's so far from electronic music yeah. as well. It's um, boring. Yeah, yeah, it's boring. <laughs> but he, he, you know, extensive trumpet player, played mm. it for such a long period of time, and that knowledge so informed how he plays, how he mm. recognises music, and how he works with tempo, and probably why mm. he, like you, is quite good at constructing a vibe. Yeah, you know, and, and also it's the anticipation. So and, and particularly in dance music, you know, dance music on the whole – you know, it's 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 a it's a four four sig- time signature. You know, it's very easy to anticipate what's going to happen. Everything is in you know is in sort of, you know, sort of eight bars. You know, so in eight bars, you know something else is going to happen, and in eight bars time, another thing's going to happen, and probably in eight bars time, there's going to be a breakdown. The breakdown mm. will go for eight bars, and then we'll come back to the track again. You know, and then you know there might be another mini breakdown. You know, and so yeah, it's it's. Um, I mean, I wouldn't have thought it at the time, and I certainly wasn't conscious. I didn't consciously think, oh, theory of music comes in here. Um, mm. uh, you know, but over the years, I've realised that yeah, that that having that foundation, I think, helped. Um, and certainly, the very first time I ever um, went to you know mix, you know, was shown how to mix two records together. Uh, you know, I remember um, the, the the guy who was showing me was a, he was a DJ, and and he, and straight away, you know, he so he sort of started to mix two records and said, you know. Um, do you think that, you know, do you think what, you know, do you think it should be slowed down or speeded up? And so straight away, I knew straight away to the pitch control that, yeah, okay, that needs, that's too fast. I need to slow that down. Mm. You know, and he, and he just said, oh, yeah, you seem to sort of naturally, you know, you know, whereas my boyfriend at the time, he was like going, oh, I've got no clue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so naturally I just seemed to be able to do it, but probably it wasn't that natural. It's probably because of the, you know, learning theory of music. The so. theory. Interesting. I guess that like kind of in a way explains why some people who are so good at DJ somehow seem to be musically psychic especially with that <laughs> eight bar thing it's yeah. like I, like how do they know what's coming and it yeah. kind of makes sense in yeah. that way and I think dancing as well because again when you learn to dance you've got to learn to dance to a beat and you're dancing to a rhythm and you, you know you and again you're anticipating what the movement might be and what the sound is and you know do you move your body in a particular way because of that sound is playing and then a different sound is playing or is it you know how are you trying to express that, you know, that piece of music in your body. So I think those two things together, learning to dance and um, and learning, you know, music, I think probably help. And you, and, and if you see me DJing, I mean, I'm always, I, I dance when I DJ, partly because I like it and I like dancing, but also because I'm actually keeping beat. Mm, yeah. So it's part of, you know, keeping keeping the, the beat and thinking about, okay, when will I bring the track in? You know, I, I know the beats are, are going to be matched, but, you know, when you bring the, the next track in, you know, you're bringing it in, is there a vocal playing here? You know, you're bringing it in at the start of that track. Are you going to bring it in at the beginning of a chorus? Like, when will the track come in? So usually 
actually I'm, I'm also dancing around because I'm actually marking the time in in a physical way. You know, yeah. some I'm sort of a physical sort of metronome or something. I see. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think. That's something that I realize over time because even when a DJ looks like they're still, there's always the foot tapping that's happening because yeah. you have to keep time. Yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, so it's like being a drummer, a sort of a, a drummer stroke metronome. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I was also curious to ask you, I guess, because you when I met you, you've been going back and forth between Melbourne and Greece and how with, you know, I guess you're on the board, you're on the board of that as well as working for Exponential <laughs> um, for fundraising and doing DJing. How do you square all that with living between Greece and Australia? And also, how did you come to live between Greece and Australia, <laughs> having been someone who's born in the UK? What's the relationship to somewhere um, halfway across the world? COVID. Travel oh, restrictions. really? Yeah. yeah. So basically, I got, I got stuck in mm. that. So uh, sort of just when the uh, COVID sort of dropped in Australia, I had been, I was, uh, you know, I was, you know, obviously living in Australia. I mean, I spent half my life here. Um, and and I had to go back to the UK because my dad was dying. So I wanted to spend time with him and I had to make a decision because, you know, they closed the borders and mm. they wouldn't let people out. So I had to make a decision on do I stay in Australia or do I go back to the UK and spend some time with him? But knowing if I leave, I probably can't get back in. So so I did. And then, you know, when he, when he died, I then... Um, I'd already spent a little bit of time in Greece and just thought, right, I'm not staying in the UK. Yeah. Because um, it's, you know, it's a bit boring, cold, and also for tax reasons. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, Greece doesn't tax you on your international income. So, you know, so Greece was a, was a really nice sort of place to go. And it was very nurturing. I, I, you know, I, so I have a place on a little island there with just under 2,000 people. Um, within three hours of arriving on the island, you know, I sort of got picked up and adopted by a family mm. um, who looked after me all through, you know, Greece, sort of their national COVID restrictions um, and basically had the best time. So, um, and yeah, couldn't basically get back to Australia because uh, of, yeah, because of the travel restrictions. And um, also the fact that the flights uh, one way from Melbourne to London to Melbourne were about $40,000. So I didn't really want to spend that when I could spend that in Greece hanging out. Whoa, um, yeah. And sort of living in a 100 meters away from a really nice beach um, with a really beautiful family so yeah so I've just been you know living there and because the Greeks are so awesome um, you know um, I'm actually a Greek resident so I sort of got a residency oh you got so, a permanent residency yeah 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 so um, yeah so I can basically live between the two places so yeah so there was nothing so there was no real thought in it other than I just wanted to be somewhere that was open Greece always remained open to the UK whereas a lot of other European countries closed to the UK particularly when Delta or Omicron or whatever it was came out so but Greece always remained open and is very friendly to Brits um, they speak a lot of people speak English mm. I have you know I, d- I can speak Greek so you know I did learn Greek um, and still do learn Greek um, so yeah it's just an awesome place I love the Greeks they're just you know I'm a, I'm a definitely a Hellenophile um, yeah. you know I love the, the history you know I mean even on our tiny island we've got ruins that are sort of 5,000 years old you know and um, you know, just going to like Parthenon in Athens and all these incredible places. Um, and the culture, the the contemporary culture is is amazing. And Greece is a, is is a place where they love the arts. And in fact, I mean, they kind of invented the arts almost. So you know, when the rest of Europe was sort of running around in caves thousands of years ago. Um, the Greeks were writing plays, you know, mm. so, you know, comedy and drama. Um, uh, I actually went to an ancient amphitheatre where I saw a play. The amphitheatre itself was about 5,000 years old. Um, the play itself was also 5,000, had been written 5,000 years ago. It could have been a contemporary play. Um, and it's, it is actually the world's oldest play. It's called The Frogs. Um, and... Th- 
in ancient Greek sort of culture or society, theatre is actually the temple of health. So that's where you go for your mental health. Mm. So that was that's that was their thinking over five thousand years ago, um, and we're just sort of coming to it now, you know. Um, so yeah, so I so I really really love the Greeks. So they're really into arts, and to them, it doesn't seem unusual that I DJ, I do consulting work at all, mm. at all. So you know, because they're so into the arts, very artistic. Yeah. Um, you know, they're very positive about the arts. They support the arts. I understand that there are more shows on in Athens a night than there are in New York on Broadway. Wow. So, you know, and, and those shows will be on in both English and Greek. Um, you oh, know, play shows. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I yeah, see. yeah. And theater yeah. shows and, you know, musicals and all sorts of things. So, um, and, you know, I mean, because I, 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 you know, I DJ in, in Athens from time to time and um, last year I was playing with a band. I was their sort of support DJ and there is really cool um, Afro jazz psychedelic band, right? And it was just this, um, I just met this this guy literally wandering around the streets of Athens with a saxophone playing the sax and I was just like well you know your shit's really cool mm. um, you know we just got talking and then next thing I know I'm, I'm sort of going to his house which is actually sort of like a kind of a squat studio gallery sort of theatre space <laughs> um, you know with a little bar having drinks with him and meeting his friends and he's got his friends art you know in the little gallery upstairs his friends artworks and all this sort of stuff um, and he, you know, would have been about seventy or something. This, this. Guy. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, and um, you know, played. And so he said, "Oh, you should come and you know join my band and be you know be the support DJ." So I'm like, "Okay, great, I will." So, um, so they had this show because um, he was doing mini festivals at his house. You know, it's like yeah. you know, it's crazy. You know, and there'd be like hundreds of people there. It's like nuts. Um, but he, so he did this uh, show at. Um, um, at, at this theatre now, this the- this particular theatre in in Athens is called um, it's called Emvros, and it's um, an incredible space. So back in the day, sort of it, sort of up until the forties and fifties, it was a printing press. So it was a huge warehouse space, and then some artists took it over and turned it into a theatre theatre style space, um, with sort of an auditorium stage, that sort of thing. And then I think in the last sort of fifteen years, they ran out of, out of money and it shut down. Um, and or maybe 20 years ago. And so it was just sitting um, abandoned in the middle of the city centre. And then at some point, the, the council in Athens said, oh, you know, we want to, we're going to redevelop this space. The community just said, no, you're not, and took it over and basically broke into it. And so it's actually, it's, it's technically, it's, a, it's an illegal squat but it's a theatre space that's self-managed. And so you can go in and actually, you know, they have a committee meeting once a week and you can actually go and um, book, book a session to use the space for free. And so this huge theatre space that probably holds about three or 400 people, mm. you can just use. Wow. And so every now and then apparently the police will go and shut it down, you know, because it's illegal. And then they'll it's it's reopened in for 24 hours. Yeah. So it's sort of like pirate theatre, you know. So I just, you know, and that's just so very um, Athens, very Greek, you know, to just, no, we're going to use it. Yeah, it's there. Um, and I just love that about Greece. You know, they're very, um, what I found particularly during COVID restrictions is as long as you look like you're following the rules, everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so people, of course, you know, here are the rules. You must follow them. So yeah. just look like you're following them. Yeah, okay, we're all cool. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, so that that's, you know, that looseness, which in in contrast to Australia, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's just very refreshing. You yeah. Know? So, so playing in this incredible sort of, you know, theatre space, you know, with this band 
in basically a squat with hundreds of people in the audience, you know, and they just literally pass a box around and people put donations in and, you know, you can sort of sell some, you know, glasses of wine for like a euro each or something. They've even got a rooftop terrace, you know, like, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's an incredible space. I mean, you just wouldn't have that here, you know? So yeah. So, so Greece excites me. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have to tell me where that is. So when I go over, <laughs> I can have a look. Um, is that kind of how you got into writing plays as well? Or you were doing um, that before? You no, I was doing that before. So um, so that that really came out of um, some years ago, I wrote a book um, sort of detailing the contribution of people of colour from the British Empire, former British Empire and now the Commonwealth, um, their contribution to World War II. Um, and, and, and I did that sort of on behalf of a charity. So that's, I'm a, you know, I'm a sort of, I'm an honorary sort of council member, volunteer with the Royal Commonwealth Ex Services League. So their, their mandate is basically anybody who's ever served the British Crown but doesn't live in England or doesn't live in the UK and is in need, mm. they will support and they support them essentially with cash. Yeah. Um, and so there's a hell of a lot of people that served in World War Two. A lot of them are dying off now. I mean, when I joined in mid-2000s, we probably still had about 20,000 veterans. Now we'd have about 5,000 mm. sort of globally. Um, so with that, with that organisation... Um, you know, we were talking about, okay, what fundraisers could we do? So, you know, I sort of said, look, I think it would be really great to actually, you know, capture these stories of these people, you know, because I know I wasn't taught about them. I mean, I was bad. I didn't even know Australia was even in World War Two. You know, yeah. I just thought it was just, you know, it was just basically the power of Britain, Yeah. you know, um, versus the Germans and Japanese. And then the Americans came in and then it was sort of over, you know. So I didn't know that, you know, India served, Australia served, New Zealand served, you know, a lot of countries in Africa served, the Caribbean served, Canada mm. served, you know, there was just nothing. So let alone that it was black people in there, you know, not even, I didn't even think about, you know, sort of white Aussie diggers serving. Yeah. So, because we weren't taught that at school. So, um, so we thought about, okay, let's see if we can redress that balance in the UK. Um, so I basically wrote a book, detailing all of that but a school book so yeah. you know so we so we you know surveyed some teachers to find out what do you want in class you know what will help you teach this type of history and they you know like and we've got no resources if you can make it like this this and this so so the book matches the um, UK school curriculum for history English and citizenship um, it's used in both primary schools and secondary schools um, and and so out of that when I came back to Australia um in 2010 and sort of brought the book back with me and showed a friend he, he was just like oh this book's really amazing we don't have anything like this here mm. um and he said and he's a playwright and he said you really should write a play on this and i'm like you know well i've never written a play before so he said well i'll help you so she did and you know he's an award-winning playwright he's written 35 plays and stuff so you know so we we sort of co-wrote this play um, called Who Saved JFK, mm. based on the stories in this book, and, and one of the one of the principal stories. Well, actually, it's a very small story in the in you know in the very large sort of scheme of World War Two, which um, is um, about um, the, the the sort of the Pacific theatre. Um, obviously, Australians and Americans were very much more involved in in the Pacific sort of side of of the mm. war, um, and um, the Americans. Uh, obviously had lots of troops around and so you know there's a night in 1943 where there's sort of 13 sort of marines uh, or sort of i guess 12 marines and an officer on a on a very small wooden kind of patrol ship um in the middle of the night two o'clock in the morning 
a very large Japanese destroyer, basically just slices straight straight through them. The the Japanese destroyer didn't know the boat was there because it's nighttime, it's dark, mm. and it's very small, and just sliced it in half. So that so the, these men basically had to swim. I think a couple did drown, but the ones that eleven survived. Um, and sort of managed to swim to a nearby island, which was Plum Pudding Island. Um, and basically there was another islet next door where there were coconuts growing. So they would swim between the two because um, obviously there were some men that were injured that couldn't swim. So mm. a couple of the guys would go over, get coconuts, and they basically lived on coconuts. Because it was such a small boat with really quite a minuscule cr- cr- crew, the Americans didn't actually send out any kind of patrol ships to look for them because they just got too much other stuff going yeah. on. But um, an Australian coast watcher sort of in on sort of, sort of nearby sort of islands heard the noise and sort of heard noises on the radio and stuff like that and sort of thought, oh, I think so, you know something's obviously happened here. And the coast watchers were sort of volunteers who would radio to, you know, the allies. Oh, we've seen some Japanese, you know, um, you know, sort of uh, boats in the area or whatever, you know, and sort of give intel. So, so this chap, um, Reg Evans, um, asked two local Solomon Islanders um, to go out and see if they could find any survivors. So they actually sailed around for six days at huge risk to themselves because they were caught by the Japanese. They would have been killed Mm. um, in little um, one-man canoes. um, And eventually they come across these islands and actually find the men. Now, when they find, uh, you know, they found two of the men, there were sort of two problems. One was that they um, couldn't speak English. The Americans, obviously, well, the Solomon Islanders, and obviously the Solomon Islanders, um, you know, the Americans couldn't speak their language. Um, and they also couldn't stage a rescue because they were in one-man canoes. Mm. So the officer um, takes one of the empty coconut shells and scratches a message inside it and gives it to one of the Solomon Islanders, um, Biku and Aroni, and they take this coconut back with them with a whole bunch of other coconuts in, the, in their canoe and go back to the Australian Coast Watchers, you know, and again, at great personal risk to themselves. Um, They then show um, the Coast Watcher the coconut shell. They also plot the position on a map. And so these chaps are all rescued. So the officer that wrote the message was John F. Kennedy. Um, And had he not sent that message, you know, because in the meantime, the Americans had already sent a telegram to his parents to say, missing in action, presumed dead. Mm. So his family already think he's dead. when you think about the civil rights movement and the fact that he was rescued by two black guys, the civil rights movement could have gone completely differently. Mm. And maybe that's why he was so, you know, in favour of the civil rights movement because, you know, he owed his life to two black guys. So basically the play charts that story interspersed with stories of other Indigenous um, and sort of soldiers of colour. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And I think also there would probably be so many other stories like that that you learn that aren't even just about yeah. JFK. How did, yeah. you, how did you go about getting the information for that and go, doing the research and that kind of thing? Um, just every night after work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot, a, lot of in, a lot of internet sleuthing. Um, look, talking to um, Imperial or well, sort of war museums, you know, um, going through sort of archives. Um, at the time I was living in London, so I was able to go to the Imperial War Museum, for example, go through their photographic collection. Um, so a lot of their photographs appear in the book. Um, and I was also... Um, I was also I was working in finance at the time, but I was setting up um, uh, sort of agencies all around 
the the world, or mainly around. I, I work mainly in Africa, um, sort of East West Africa, um, Philippines, and and Europe. So with that travel, I was able to sort of go into those countries and say, "Oh, have you got like a local war museum, or have you got some memorials, or what stories do you have?" Mm. Um, and then through, you know, I was with the Royal Commonwealth Ex Services League, so they were also able to put me in touch with different sort of um, military sort of veterans groups and things like that. So. Yeah, but it, it you know it didn't. I mean, it was a it was a project. So um, I think I, I started it in the January, and had a published, printed book by the November. Whoa! So that was what like a ten month turnaround yeah, on that book. Yeah, yeah. Oh my, that's, <laughs> <laughs> Erica, that's insane. That's phenomenal. How, so th- wow, I'm really intrigued by this because I think that you are clearly someone who's just like the hustle is relentless. And what, <laughs> wow. That so yeah. So I think I'm probably a bit of a polymath or something. Yeah. So I sort of do sort of several things and stuff like that. So I'm not into sports, but I do like dance. So I think the physical side is I like dancing. Um, I'm not, you know, I was never really into sports as a kid. So although sports features rather largely in my family, I didn't like sports at all. So, um, you know, I don't really like getting hot and sweaty unless I'm in a club. So, Mm, yeah, um, yeah, so definitely music. And, you know, I did ballet for a long time and, you know, sort of contemporary dance and stuff like that. So, yeah, so I think that's sort of my – because in polymath, you're supposed to be sort of good at everything, including physical. So Mm. my physical activity is dancing, not sports. Interesting. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I think it's really really interesting. I think looking through, I guess, just like having sleuthed your LinkedIn and Instagram and that kind of thing, you have a really strong commitment to learning and, like, continuing to explore mm. and do new things which is amazing and I think it probably highlights why you have such a like vivacious and positive approach to life because you're always having these novel experiences and extending your reach and these kinds of things um yeah I was really interested in hearing about I guess your work in working with in doing this textbook as well as like the plays and working with CARICOM I know that you had your both of your parents were born in pre-independence Jamaica and you're a UK citizen and I think I guess yeah, I was just curious if you could tell me a bit more about CARICOM and how that's mm. functioned. Um, and yeah, I, maybe I guess what's motivated your involvement with not just the Royal Ex Services League, but obviously you have a really strong social conscience as well. And what's mm. led to that? Um, so look, so, so CARICOM, for those who don't know, is um, just a short name for the Caribbean. It's a, it's a group of Caribbean governments. So a bit like the EU, um, but same thing, but in the Caribbean um, and, and sort of principally the English sort of speaking Caribbean countries. Um, and and I guess that those that were basically former British colonies. Um, so my involvement with CARICOM, again, is in a volunteer sort of honorary capacity, um, and that's to do with reparations. <clears throat> so it's actually the CARICOM Reparations Committee. Um, and reparations are specifically about transatlantic slavery. Um, without that, none of us, we, we know our ancestors um, are African. So technically, technically, Genetically, you know, I'm not actually Jamaican. So while my parents were born in Jamaica, um, we're not actually Jamaican because the, there were indigenous Jamaicans who were there way mm. before Africans were taken there. Um, and so our ancestry is a mix of European and African. Um, when the Europeans arrived in the Caribbean, basically most of the indigenous people were killed out um, through disease, um, trying th- through sort of enslavement, that sort of thing. Um, and they were sort of killed out within 50 years. So it was a very short space of time. So those indigenous, there were like 12 indigenous groups originally. Um, and the word Caribbean comes from one of the groups who are called the Caribs. Um, and they would have looked very similar to indigenous people of North and South America. So that that's a sort of, that's what they would have mm. kind of looked like. Um, once the Europeans... Um, 
you know, or the, as the Portuguese started the, the, the enslavement and trafficking of, of Africans out of Africa to the Caribbean and to North and South America. Um, and obviously the British joined in, you know, with um, with uh, much gusto. Um, that, you know, in Jamaica, um, that continued on until 1834. So whilst... Um, the the movement that uh, Wilberforce sort of um, led around stopping slavery was actually it actually initially just stopped the trafficking part, so it became illegal to actually get people from Africa and ship them across. Mm. But it still wasn't illegal to create slaves, and so slaves were created. So if your mother was a slave, you automatically were a slave. Even if your father was the plantation owner, you automatically were a slave. Um, so um, and and so you, and you'll find when you look at sort of old Jamaican birth certificates, you know they don't often put if the, if the mother's not married, they don't put the father's name. You know and this mm. is all about you know sort of trying to hide all this kind of stuff because you know you don't want to give people rights, right? And uh, yeah, continue <laughs> the lineage of enslaving yeah, people. Exa- yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, so when slavery was finally stopped, so the actual enslavement in sort of in place, um, and that was completely abolished. Um, so in Jamaica, that was in 1834. It's different in different islands. Um, then um, the, the people who'd formerly been enslaved um, were not given any kind of compensation. Um, so the slave owners were. Mm. And um, and there's actually a database. It's, it's, it's a public database. You can go online at UCL, University College of London, has a database where you can actually see, you can put in your surname if you like, um, and see if you have any ancestors that received payment for losing their slaves mm. um, so every slave each slave owner was compensated and it wasn't until about two years ago that British taxpayers finally paid all that back so it means that even us as you know children of migrants and migrants were paying back the money that was given to slave owners for compensation oh so it was continuing to be paid back yeah. until two years ago yeah so we finally paid it all off um, as a British people and as British taxpayers. Um, and and then, so an island like Haiti, which is not part of CARICOM, because they, they, were, they were colonised by the French, they were one of the first islands to become free from the, from their colonisers. And um, the, the slaves basically revolted and they won and kicked the French out. Now, the French then went back to France, spoke to the king. They were very unhappy because they've got property there and, you know, the, you know they were trying to make sugar and rum and all these different things. Mm. Um, and so the French, the, the king then sent the French Navy back and basically said to slaves, you know, we're going to basically, you know, bomb the hell out of you. Um, and so you will lose. Um, but if you pay us reparations, then we'll leave you alone. So Haiti has been paying reparations for about 150 years or so. They finally sort of stopped. They finished their last payments in the 1950s. And that's really why Haiti's so poor. Mm. So they've never had a chance to, you know, get themselves sorted because all this time they've been paying the, the, the slave owners and their descendants until the 1950s reparations for, for freeing themselves. Yeah. So, um, so this, you know, so this sort of issue around reparations um, is a very live issue in the Caribbean. Um, we, as a people, we haven't had a formal apology about slavery for the the role of Europeans in slavery, um, and certainly no compensation in that. 
Um, we have precedents set in other places. I mean, the fact that the Haitians, you know, imagine the Africans had to pay the slave owners. I mean, it's really quite outrageous. Yeah, it's completely. Um, But more recently, if we look at um, the wars with Germany, they paid reparations. Um, If we look at even more recently, the first Gulf War, where the Iraq invaded Kuwait, they just finished paying their reparations last year. Mm. They paid, it took them 30 years to pay off. Um, maybe two years now because I think they finished paying in 2021 or so. Um, so they paid millions of dollars back to Kuwait in reparations. So we certainly have precedents around the world for countries paying reparations. However, there is a real reluctance on the European governments to do so. Mm. Um, so the committee that I'm part of, it's it, it's the Caribbean governments um, from CARICOM have put together, um, you know, with the help with a bunch of academics and um uh, and, and obviously talking to the people, a 10-point plan of, of, of how they would like to see reparations. So it's not simply just, oh, we want a bunch of money. Mm. It's things like, you know, number one is actually a formal apology. We've had statements of regret, but no actual apology. You know, the fact that, you know, our sort of Indigenous brothers and sisters in Australia have a sorry day. We don't have that. And when you consider that, you know, slavery was perpetuated for about 400 years, um, you know, there's nothing mm. um, other than that, oh, yeah, we regret that. Um, so, yeah, and so other things that, you know, so, for example, if you go to the Caribbean, there's actually no museum or archives to any of this. So there's a slavery museum in Liverpool in the UK, but there isn't one in, in the Caribbean. So, you know, so it means that local researchers haven't got access to archives. There's no, you know, we're not telling our own story. And unfortunately, you know, the Caribbean, you know, isn't a wealthy area. So, you know, it doesn't have the funding. But also, actually, you know, you know, we think that's something that's a reasonable request that they could fund. Um, uh, money for healthcare. So um, diabetes is one of the biggest killers in the region, and it's 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 sort of partially intergenerational trauma, um, as well as you know, sort of diet and stress. So imagine, you know, if you were enslaved, you started work from the age of two. There were you know, children started from two, until they dropped. People. St- stayed until they dropped and if they if they were older you know maybe you know even as an old person if you managed to live that long you know you'd still be expected to do something um and for women um you know it was seen that certain uh, women that came from certain tribes in africa were seen as more fertile so because once they stopped the the shipment of people and they could create slaves in place well women were then basically baby makers to create more to slaves. create more slaves um, so, you know, so all of this sort of trauma, you know, is not addressed. Um, and again, you know, we've seen with our Jewish brothers and sisters, you know, receiving reparations, acknowledgement, you know, we talk about the Holocaust, we teach the Holocaust, and yet nothing is said about this, you know, sort of 400 years of enslavements for African-Americans, South Americans, um, you know, African-South Americans and Afro-Caribbeans. So, yeah, so it's, that's reparations in the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's outrageous. And I think it's pretty shocking as well just for me to have such little awareness of it. In particular, I think there's such a lack of awareness about it. But, yeah, it's a lot to think about. And, yeah, I, yeah I, <laughs> commend, how's, it, how's it been going? Like in the sense of I saw that you did a keynote speech at um, for the Fiji High Commissioner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it was the University of Fiji. They were printing um, – they, they just sort of launched a publication – um, about um, reparations um, in the American context, so the sort of African-American context under jo- the, what they called jo- the John Crow laws, which were basically the, the laws 
um, which were in place up until the 1960s around segregation and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So they had like a South Africa, you know, whites only drinking fountains and, you mm. know, schools were segregated and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, so, so they asked me to sort of come and speak about the work of um, the Caribbean and, and what, you know, the sort of things that, you know, what our plan is and what we're trying to achieve. Um, but it's, it's tough because, you know, we can't get um, British government in the room to speak. Yeah. To us about it. So, you know, there's, um, you know, I sort of think that they, I don't, I don't know, well, I don't know what they think. I mean, I sort of can't anticipate what they think. But, um, I mean, an outcome of them not wanting to speak, you know, Barbados has become a republic and Jamaica is talking about becoming a republic. Um, so that's an outcome of the fact that they're not talking about mm. this thing. Um, and not wanting to engage in it, you know, whereas, as you know, as we all know, someone just saying sorry and acknowledgement and acknowledging a wrong, you know, that's happened. I mean, in essence, we see it as a, a crime against humanity, um, but it's just not being treated like that. So, Yeah, and it's definitely an easier issue for governments to ignore because yeah. of the financial interest and things like that. Mm. For, I think, uh, just a personal question, like if I wanted to help support advocacy and efforts with reparations, is there anything that I could do or anyone could do to help with that? Um, one of the things we're looking at doing is actually a membership scheme. So once that's in place um, with the CRC, so the Caribbean Reparations Committee, so you can go onto their website certainly and have a mm. look. Um, but we're, we're talking about some, you know, because I've said the sort of same thing, you know, I know that there'd be a lot of young people who would be interested in supporting um, a campaign, you know, once we've sort of finalised a campaign um, and also sort of getting artists involved, um, you know, sort of doing it through popular culture. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so certainly sort of keep an eye on that website. Um, and once we, you know, sort of kind of go live with a, I guess, it'll either be a, a type of sort of change.org type campaign um, with an opportunity to, you know, maybe make some donations to help us sort of, you know, sort of deliver the campaign um, or, you know, or become a member to show you solidarity, then, yeah. Um, so just keep an eye on Caribbean Caricom Reparations Committee, I think, .org. Yeah, I'll definitely post a link to it as well when I mm. share this. Um, oh, that was Yeah, sorry, that was a really interesting topic. <laughs> <laughs> Go from here. I did, I did have a couple of other points um, that I was curious to ask you about as well. But, yeah, I think just once again, like, that's amazing. I think you're absolutely phenomenal and it's... Yeah, it's really a testament to you that you've done so many things as well as having these such strong values and having such motivation to create change and not just create a beautiful life for yourself, but also improve and address reparations and, yeah, fight for what's right, which is pretty commendable. I think it's pretty easy for me as, like, a white person in Australia to have, you know, completely dismiss my own social conscience and, like, feel... Mm yeah, a lack of like community responsibility. But I think as a person of colour, you know, you don't have that option to not be aware yeah. of it because yeah, I don't, I don't have anything to fight for, for my own, per my own personal mm -hmm. experience. But yeah, hearing you say that reminds me that I need to be doing so much more than mm -hmm. what I am as well. So yeah. And look, and I, I always think that people can, um, particularly if people sort of think, oh, that's not my issue. Or that's nothing to do with me. I mean, one, I think, you know, all humans, we are connected. Apparently we're, we're related by the, the maximum sort of distance is that we're a 50th related. So we mm. are actually all, we're all related at the end of the day. But, you know, I think if you actually examine you, your family tree and go back in time, you'll find an intersection. So whether that's, you know, so if you've got family, um, you know, particularly in Europe, if you've got, you know, and really most, you know, sort of white Australians are going to have European heritage, there'll be an intersection. So I know, you know, I can tell you that when I did a DNA test, you know, I'm 90% uh, African, but I'm actually 10% European. 
and very specifically European. So mm. Scottish, Irish and Scandinavian. So there's an intersection because slave owners were European and slaves were African. And mm. in the Caribbean, it's very much the story of African women and European men. So we're all related, mm. you know. And even someone like, um, everyone knows Bob Marley from Jamaica. Yeah. His dad was Scottish. So he has a whole Scottish lineage. Mm. Um, so, you know, we intersect. There are more Jamaicans called Campbell than there are Campbells in Scotland. So, you know, the Scottish were in Jamaica, the Irish were there. In fact, the Irish were actually sent as, um, before the Africans went to Jamaica, 100,000 Irish were sent as indentured slaves into um, the Caribbean or into Jamaica. Um, and um, But the British found they weren't sort of great workers, um, so they, you know, brought the Africans in instead. Um, so we all have a connection somewhere. Um, so, yeah, so I always sort of ask people, dig into your own family tree. You know, you'll find an intersection at some point, you know, so actually it does become your issue. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Well, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to explain all that to me and to coming and talk. I think that's a pretty good point to leave it at. It was yeah, amazing. Like, really, thank you so much. I feel that I've learned a lot from you across quite a few <laughs> different categories. Um, yeah, that's incredible. I think just along that vein as well, is there any other work that you're doing that you might want to talk about at all? Or um, And doing some interesting um, projects with um, some Indigenous groups here. So um, one with uh, Stolen Gen um, survivors, which is, which is pretty interesting given where we're at right now with The Voice. Um, and um, and then also just you know, some grassroots work with some you know some projects over in Western Australia um, with a really really amazing project out in the Western Desert um, uh, sort of getting young Indigenous people out on country um, through a Young Rangers program um, and there's also opportunities for employment as well so things like that are really cool um, and you know only in Australia could I do that which is really amazing so um, so I'm all sort of very um, feel very privileged to be able to um, work with Indigenous people knowing my privilege in comparison um, you know that I, I have to acknowledge that I you know I stand at a certain level um, and have more privilege um, than my indigenous sort of um, brothers and sisters um, and you know really I would like to just you know see that we can do more in that space you know as sort of individuals you know sort of forget whether we're you know white black whatever you know that you know we all have a part to play you know it's not about ancestors oh well they did this years ago it's nothing to do with us it's it's very live right now um and you know i think you know i sort of hope with the with the voice and with younger people coming through and with more younger people being voters that we can see a bit more kind of movement in that space you know because i would love to see for example you know, I mean, we do these acknowledgements to country. I mean, I love a welcome to country definitely when an Indigenous person is a welcome to country. You know, it's very, I, I really love that. But I have mixed feelings about the acknowledgement to country because in it we talk about not ceding land and we talk about, you know, um, acknowledging, you know, that we've taken this land, but we're not actually doing anything about it, which mm. is why it makes me uncomfortable because it's like we're saying this, you know, it feels like lip service. Um, and so one thing I would love to see if I were a politician and I could wave a magic wand um, would be um, where we pay stamp duty when we buy and sell homes, that we actually take part of that stamp duty and pay it to the local land council, the local sort of mm. indigenous group um, who are in that nation that we're buying that land on. That to me would feel much more kind of authentic 
and um, meaningful um, to then say, yes, we acknowledge we haven't taken the land in here. You know, we this is how we value things. We value things, you know, we're a capitalist society, it's fine. We value things with money. So let us at least demonstrate how, you know, by giving you part of this value back and mm. acknowledging that, yes, we have taken this land, but you know what? Each time we trade it, you know, you will receive some value from that trade. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good idea. And I think I also feel kind of optimistic about it. I think that the rise mm. in social conscience, particularly among young people, has been mm. so almost rapid and unprecedented, at least mm. for me, growing up in like Central Coast Australia. And the difference from then till now, which is yeah. less than 10 years, is pretty incredible. And with the rise of mass media. So I mm. hope that in the future it's getting better all the time and definitely a lot yeah. less lip service and a lot less symbolic and a lot more meaningful action, which absolutely we'll see about the political scene is could make makes me very pessimistic at least but yeah and yeah. I think it's oh look I think the fact we're having a debate over the voice is a, is a really great start mm. you know I think with the previous government it wouldn't have happened yeah you know, realistically so you know I think it's it's a great start and look it may not be perfect but we're talking about it and that's that's the start of, of you know of yeah, something great yeah a dialogue yeah exactly exactly rather than just pushing it under the carpet you know and saying well you know it's terrenalius you know because we know it wasn't yeah you yeah. know it's sort of the elephant in the room. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Well, great, thank you thank so you. much. I think that's a great spot to... Um, and thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>